Greetings, all you 99 percenters. This is your host, Dr. Jack Rasmus. This is Alternative Visions. Okay, today I um, want to talk about uh, that incredible jobs report that came out this morning showing over 500,000 new jobs. Yeah, we'll have to talk about that one. Even the uh, mainstream economists on Bloomberg News and elsewhere are scratching their heads and saying, no, something's not quite right about these job stats, we think. Yeah, well, we'll address that. Uh, And then I want to talk about the Fed, Federal Reserve, raised rates again in the middle of the week. And uh, Chairman Powell's commentary, which, of course, is linked to the jobs report, as we'll see, because he's, he keeps targeting the jobs numbers as the reason for raising interest rates. As the jobs numbers are over 500,000, what do you think he's going to do, cut interest rates? Well, you know, the professional investors on Wall Street are spinning that. They believe that that's what's going to happen. Uh, they've been trying to spin that notion against the Fed here for at least nine months. Uh, so, uh, you know, We'll talk about that. But first, I want to say something about the most important news of the day, and that is this Chinese balloon that's over this country that somehow was sent on these Pacific winds, and it managed to get right to the ICBM site in Montana, and it stopped. Yeah, it's hovering. It was hovering right over that site, you know. And apparently the winds just stopped when it got to that site and gave it time to, I'm sure there's a mouse in that balloon who's taking pictures of the ICBM site. You know, and now the move, the, the balloon has moved on, and who knows where it's going, and the Pentagon is doing press releases in front of the media saying, oh, there's a Chinese balloon. Yeah. Wow. Talk about crazy psyops. It's getting more ridiculous every day. Chinese balloon. Come on, give me a break. Yeah, well, that's the big news of the day. And, uh, yeah, there's a problem with these Chinese balloons. So we really ought to uh, go to war with China once and forever and stop these balloons. Okay. I'm not going to waste any more time on that. Uh, so let's move over to the jobs numbers. Yeah, 517,000 new last month. Unemployment rate did not change. Unemployment, I mean, you add 500,000 jobs, the unemployment rate should go down. Hmm? Not really. You know, what we got here is over 300,000 people came out of retirement or who had left the labor force came in all at once in one month and caused the job numbers to balloon, pun intended there. Okay. What the hell? I mean, who believes that nonsense? I mean, even even guys on watching Bloomberg News this morning, you know, even mainstream economists don't believe that. Something's wrong. Yeah, something is wrong. I've been talking for a long time here about how the COVID crash restructured the labor markets in this country, ways in which the policymakers still do not understand. And that's thrown 
the job numbers off kilter here because the job numbers are based upon a labor market before pre-COVID. You know, uh, I mean, the the Bureau of Labor Statistics and the Labor Department gets its data from two sources for jobs. One source is it gets this kind of a partial consensus from large corporations that send it reports every month on how many people they've hired and so on and so forth, right? About 450,000 of large corporations. Then you got about 7 8 million small businesses, at least, in this country. And the other information on the labor market is picked up on a, from a survey that the Labor Department does, a second source. You know, first source is the information from the large corporations. That's called the establishment survey. And then there's a second source, which is called the population survey, which is a 60,000 a month phone interviews, phone survey, right? Uh, small businesses and individuals and so forth, right? That, that's, and that's where they get the unemployment rate from the population survey. And somehow they mix these two surveys, you know? It's like uh, putting together uh, uh, oranges and sweet potatoes, and uh, they mix it up and they say, well, okay, you know, this is this is the situation. Then they do all kinds of statistical operations on it, seasonality, new business development, whatever, you know, overlaid on top of all this. Then they come up with their numbers. The numbers you get are a statistic. They are not the actual raw data of jobs. And then the government manipulates that, saying, oh, we created so many new jobs a month. No, most of them are people coming back to work, jobs that existed before as the economy opens up after COVID. Those aren't net new created jobs, but they call them created. And, you know, Biden takes all this, oh, I, you know, four million jobs under my regime here. You know, well, you know, COVID whacked out uh, 20 million. I don't know exact number. Depends what month you're looking at in 2020. At one point, we had uh, over 30 million people jobless. And then we get the statistics on GDP, economic growth, I talked about last week, right? The fundamental bottom conclusion of which uh, the crash in the economy in the first half of 2020, an attempt to reopen the economy in the third quarter, the summer of 2020, uh, it kind of relapsed. It fell back. It didn't really open when we got new COVID uh, strains that came. And at the end of uh, 2020, we had the economy sinking back. And then in, when Ob- uh, not Obama, but uh, when Biden came in, you know, he threw some more money at it. Uh, and we got and, and we got the vaccines and they reopened the economy again the second time in the summer of 2021. And then we found out that, oh, the labor markets and uh, the global supply chains were all screwed up. And we started getting inflation in September of 2021, which has continued ever since. And uh, what did we get in real growth after the crash of 2020? As I said last week, it's worth repeating here, summary. Uh, We got... uh, a 5.4% GDP rise in 2021, followed by a 1% growth last year. 
I think you 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 got to be careful what government statistics you're looking at. Uh, if you take as the government puts out to the media the average growth for the year, then the economy last year in 2022 grew 2.1 percent. But if you look at it, the the more accurate way to look at it is where were we at the end of last year or the year before december 2021 and where were we in december 2022 from december to december what was the net growth of the economy december to december one percent so after spending eight trillion dollars in stimulus four trillion by the federal reserve throwing money at banks and corporations free money Right? And four trillion by Congress added up the CARES Act, right? The Consolidation Act and the COVID Relief Act and all the little ones in between. And then add up the three bills that uh, once they shut down the COVID relief, they started funneling money into corporations to in- stimulate investment, you know, and that's the Infrastructure Act. Uh, the, the the Chip and Manufacturing Act and the so-called misnamed Inflation Reduction Act, which is really subsidies to corporations, uh, some of which has to do with the energy energy sector. Okay, that was over a trillion dollars in those three acts, right? The impact of which hasn't really hit the economy because, because it's long-term investment uh, driven, but the COVID relief thing, uh, plus those investment acts, four trillion dollars by Congress, four trillion by the Fed, four trillion by Congress, eight trillion dollars of stimulus in twenty one twenty two. What did we get? We got five point four percent and one percent. And now we're heading into a recession. Oh, but wait a minute, wait a minute. You know they're saying, oh, they're saying no, no. Uh, we're going to have a soft landing. That's what you hear from the business media, a soft landing. Hmm. Well, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, is there a soft landing coming? All right. First of all, the Fed rates, almost 5% of interest rate hikes in less than a year, kind of a record here, uh, have yet to fully impact the economy. You know, there's always a lag of at least 9 to 18 months in interest rate, monetary policy changes. So it's just going to start hitting the economy. Now, it it hits uh, housing first, but then it starts hitting the consumers and uh, business investment. And that's only just beginning. And the Fed is still raising interest rates. You know, raising it this past week, a quarter percent. And after 500,000 new jobs, you think the Fed's going to stop interest rate hikes? (laughs) Not really. Well, so much for that spin. What am I? Who's pushing the spin? Well, it's professional investors. No stock market, the markets, as they say, quote, the markets, you know, which is really euphemism for big capitalists, the markets, you know, depersonalize this, you know. Distract people from these are real human beings pulling off this shit. Okay, so what are they doing? Well, they keep trying to spin through their media that, oh, the Fed's not going to raise rates anymore. Or, oh, the Fed's going to start cutting rates later in the year. 
and that has a big impact on investors. They want into the greedy ones want to get in there on the ground when the market starts rising again and get some, you know, price appreciation, speculation, profits here. So they all jump in. They many investors come back in, and the stock market goes up, and certain people get rich, right? And then the Fed comes along and says, no, no, more rate hikes. Oh, the stock market goes down, and they get rich on going down, too, because they short sell. That's a way of uh, of betting, if you're a professional investor, uh, that the the price of the stock will decline, and you make profits off of that. Yeah, I'm going to explain how that works, but, yeah, they make profits out out of the market going down, and they make profits out of it going up, so they like the seesaw, and they keep pumping the seesaw, you know? And that's been going on for nine months now. But you really think the Fed is not going to continue rising interest rates? Come on. Well, you know, it looked like the Fed was going to raise it a couple more times here, you know, in March, maybe in April, and then stop and see because, you know, it's just beginning to hit the economy with these rates, and they want to see what the effect is. There's a little bit of sign that certain sectors – uh, price increases are slowing. They're not negative. They're slowing down. The rate of increase is slowing down. They call that disinflation, where the rate of increase slows. So there's some disinflation going on, of course, in the housing sector and now even in the good sector. The services are not slowing down. The price increases in services aren't slowing down yet, according to Powell. Chair Powell, the Federal Reserve, and they're hoping that more unemployment will pull that off, you know, because if you lay people off, they don't have the income, they don't spend, you know, consumer spending slows down, right? That means the demand for goods slows down and demand-driven inflation uh, slows down and prices are supposed to come down. Well, that's if everything, if all these prices are due to demand, too much money. And then and it's not. As I've said many times, it's mostly supply side, which the Fed says they can't do anything about anyway. I mean, look, you know, every time Powell comes out with a press conference, you know, he makes this perfunctory statement that, uh, uh, look, we have no control over global supply chains. And then he doesn't say anything about price gouging by monopoly companies in the U.S. doesn't say anything about that. So he ignores the supply side because he knows the Fed has no influence on the supply. It can only attack demand. So he's trying to attack demand here by raising interest rates. But when you get 500,000 jobs, quote, created last month, well, that's not layoffs, is it? Well, that means the Fed's going to have to get a little more aggressive on raising rates. And that's the end of the spin going on. (laughs) <laughs> by the market professional investors and their media that, oh, the Fed's going to slow down and even start cutting rates, right? So that put the kibosh, the job numbers, they put the kibosh on that spin. I got a piece out there in the in blog, uh, you know, the blog world, and on my blog, jackrasmus.com, called The Soft Landing and No Recession Spin is In. Take a look at it, jackrasmus.com. It's short. Yeah, sure. It just summarizes, you know, the overwhelming statistics here of why the economy is very, very weak and why the spin is bullshit and why we're going to have even 
more recessions. Right? Now you got four and a half percent interest rate hikes already that haven't really hit the economy. More Fed hikes coming. And the Fed itself said, and even the best case, even if it stops raising rates, it's going to keep them there at least through the rest of this year. High. Okay. So that's one reason why you don't have a soft landing and no recession. And remember, we're coming off a 1% growth rate last year. And by the way, that 1% growth rate, half of it was what's called inventory accumulation. What's that? That's where businesses invest and produces more goods and stores them in inventory in expectation there's going to be big consumer spending that will clear that inventory. That's exactly what last summer and early fall U.S. businesses did. Uh, They blew up their inventory in the third quarter and expectation that there'd be a lot of consumer demand on the holidays in the fourth quarter, which did not happen. So now all that inventory accumulation that boosted the GDP in third quarter last year, that five point something percent boosted it. No, no, it was 3.2 percent. Excuse me. 5.4 was the uh, 2021 total year GDP at end of year. We had a crash in the first half, a negative GDP, which they refused to call a recession here last year, 2022 first half. They refused to call that a recession. Uh, And then we got this meager 3.2% growth in the third quarter as this inventory accumulation occurred. And then we got a, quote, 2.9% GDP in the fourth quarter, and it averages out over 2.1%. That was the the, the statistic on GDP that, you know, it keeps bouncing around out there. But if you look at, and by the way, Chairman Powell looked at it this way, if you look at it from December to December, it's only 1%. Actually, a little less than 1% growth rate last year. Real growth in the real economy. After $8 trillion of stimulus. Don't tell me fiscal monetary policy is not broken. It is. Which has uh, certain implications for going forward. Okay, so on that 1% slowdown, you know, now we got all these rate hikes that are starting to hit the economy and will hit the economy. And on top of that, we got all this talk about fiscal austerity now. What's that? That means cutting social programs, the government cutting spending. All right. Well, wait a minute. I don't hear anything about that. People say, yeah, yeah, it's going on behind the cover of this phony debt ceiling negotiations. They're not talking about raising the debt ceiling. That's the cover. The Republicans will agree to raise the debt ceiling. What is important going on is, well, what are they going to cut in the meantime as a part of the deal to raise the debt ceiling? Well, they're going to cut social programs. That's what the real negotiations are about between Biden and McCarthy. Right? They're coming to some conclusion about the, you know, the big parameters. And then they'll turn it over to their 
lieutenants here in Congress and the parties uh, to uh, work out the details, you know, how much in this program, how much in that program, so on and so forth. And Republicans are talking about, oh, they want to cut Social Security because it's a big, uh, you know, a big number. Social Security. Oh, but McCarthy comes out and he says, no, no, we won't cut Social Security. I'll tell you what they're going to do. They're going to raise the retirement age. And they're going to say, oh, that's not a cut. And Biden's going to say, oh, we saved Social Security for everybody that's on it by raising the retirement age for everybody who's yet to be on it. They're going to raise it to 70 years. By the way, interesting contrast. Look what's going on in France. You got just about all the unions and workers on the street, hundreds of thousands, in protest over the president and current government in France, Macron, proposing to raise the retirement age. Now, get this from 62 to 64. Whoa. <laughs> and we're at 67, and we're going to raise it to 70. <laughs> That's a cut. That's a cut. That's a cut. In other words, people are going to have to wait three more years, those of you who are working out there, to collect Social Security by the time you get there. Yeah, that's a cut. But they're going to say, no, no, we're saving Social We're rescuing Social Security. That's what they're going to say. And they'll make other cuts elsewhere as well. You know, SSDI, Social Security, disability insurance, they'll cut eligibility for that. Uh, and, uh, you know, they'll probably... Uh, uh, raise the deductibles for Medicare. And there's a lot of other ways they could tweak it, you know. And they're going to go after other things too, you know, education, funding, and so forth. That's what McCarthy and Biden have started by meeting here behind the scenes. It's not the debt ceiling. And they'll take these positions, oh, we're not going to negotiate and so forth, but watch it in the end. And by the way, it's a repeat of exactly what happened in 2011 with Obama. 2009, he comes up with a $787 billion Great Recession Rescue Spending Fiscal Bill. And then in August, over the debt ceiling negotiations, oh, big debt ceiling problem, that uh, in August, what happens? August 2011, he agrees with the Republicans. He agrees to cut a trillion dollars out of social programs. Which passes? That's August 2011. Austerity. Yeah. Oh, they were supposed to cut 500 billion also out of defense spending, but it never got implemented. They kept putting it off, putting it off. So maybe in this deal you'll see. Oh, you know, Republicans want some cut back in defense spending, uh, but they'll conveniently maneuver to never implement that. So you'd just be left with social. Spending cuts, social program spending cuts. Us this year, just like it came in 2011. It's coming this year. Democrats and Republicans will agree. So, you know, to recap, we had this one percent growth rate last year. We have all these interest rates just starting to hit the economy. We got social spending austerity coming. Oh, and what about uh, the global economy? You know, trade. Export, production, adds to GDP growth. What's going to happen there? Well, they're really rolling the dice. They're saying that, oh, China is going to have a big impact to 
you know, reboot the global economy as it dropped its zero COVID policy now. And it's going to come back and, you know, China demand going to stimulate global trade, which will translate into a positive impetus to GDP growth domestically in the U.S. I don't think it's going to happen. I think they're overestimating that China effect. Yeah, China growth, which is now probably about 2% GDP, maybe, you know, <laughs> uh, will rebound. But it's not going back to the 6 7%. It was maybe 3%, 3.5%. That will have some effect, but it's not going to turn the global economy around. And then you got what's coming in Ukraine. I don't think people really understand what's about to happen in Ukraine, in the war. This war is going to ratchet up in the next month or so to an intensity that will make last year dress rehearsal look like a high school musical <laughs> compared to a big Broadway production here that's coming. Big offensives coming on both sides. What do you think the U.S. keeps sending all these new tanks and new artillery and all that stuff? They know it's coming. And the Russians aren't going to play games anymore. It's going to be a big offensive. They got everybody in place here. You know, I wrote a piece uh, a year ago, in January, a year ago, which I'm writing a, a follow-up on. Uh, the piece was entitled, 10 Reasons Why the U.S. May Want Russia to Invade Ukraine. And I uh, listed and discussed the advantages to U.S. Uh, uh, empire, imperial power, geopolitics, and so forth, of a war, provoking a war in the Ukraine. And that the U.S. does not want to stop that war in Ukraine. They want it to continue because they believe it will debilitate Russia economically and politically and lead to regime change, just as the policy did similar with Russia luring Russia into Afghanistan in 1979. This is a repeat of that policy, but in Ukraine. Uh, Russia sees this as a uh, existential threat on its border because if it doesn't stop it in Ukraine, uh, well, you're going to have uh, pretty quick the same thing happen in Belarus, and then you have the uh, Kazakhstan and some of those Middle Eastern countries quickly align themselves with NATO as well, and you got Scandinavia, uh, and Russia uh, will be at a almost untenable strategic uh, weak position. It knows this. And on the other hand, the U.S. has maneuvered NATO into a position that if it doesn't defeat Russia, uh, then NATO's existence may be in question. You know, it will be looked upon as a disaster, and you may have uh, some European countries leave NATO. France is talking about it. Uh, so there's an existential threat on both sides. Now, economically, a big intensive conflict here, again, is going to impact global trade and exports. 
and global inflation in commodities and so forth. That can only have a negative impact on the global economy and therefore on trade and therefore on U.S. exports and therefore on U.S. GDP going into this year. So, you know, on the global side, overestimating China COVID anti or post-COVID policy growth, I think, is occurring and underestimating the impact of the coming intensification of the war in Ukraine. So there's not going to be much impetus for growth in the U.S. Uh, on, on the global side. Now, add that to the rate hikes taking effect and the spending austerity that will occur. Global trade is stabilized even further. And look upon the statistics right now about the global economy with these things about to happen. Well, domestically, the housing sector is in the deep recession right now. Deep recession, like 60% of new housing construction, normal, going on. You know, the, the, the resale of homes uh, is irrelevant for U.S. growth in GDP. It's not calculated into GDP because it's a used good that's resold. That's not part of the calculation of GDP. It has to be new creation, new production. Well, new housing construction, you know, and uh, all the other indicators relating to it, like taking out permits for new construction and so forth, are at about two-thirds of normal, flat. Oh, there's some, uh, you know, creative financing going on, despite the high interest rates, to allow some people to continue buying homes. So the, the demand has not totally collapsed, but it's at two-thirds. It's in recession. On top of that now, we got statistics of U.S. factory output contracting for four months in a row. Contracting. Manufacturing. Factory production. On top of that, we have real consumer spending and retail sales pretty stagnant. You know, there the statistics you hear for retail sales in the fourth quarter on the holidays, you know, grew 6 7%, 5%, whatever, are not adjusted for inflation. That's all price increases. If you adjust it for inflation, you've got retail sales that are flat. And then the other day I was listening to Bloomberg News, and this company came on and was interviewed. Uh, Bloomberg News is the business channel, right? And uh, they interviewed uh, this uh, business research company, and it said that one out of 10 households are paying their rent and mortgages with their credit cards. And credit card usage in the third, fourth quarter of last year was 40% above normal. And people were paying for their rent and mortgages on their credit cards. In other words, what, to what extent we got consumption Retail spending going is heavily dependent on credit cards. That's not healthy, and that's unsustainable. And you look at real wages, and that was adjusted for inflation last year, and what? Down another 1.5% after falling 2.3% in 2021. Those statistics from the just-released Labor Department's um, Productivity and Cost Index. 
small businesses are about to default in record numbers. And business inventories, which were accounted for half of the 1% growth last year, bloated. Now they're going to be worked off, so you don't have any business inventory stimulus to GDP. You add up all these statistics and the forces that are about to impact the economy negatively. And how can you say there's a soft landing and no recession? Again, that's the professional financial investors trying to spin the markets. Really? No recession? After they've been admitting a recession, all of a sudden there's no recession, and now we got 500,000 jobs you create. Let's talk about those 500,000 jobs. Again, the statistics are broken, the job statistics, I think. I think what's happening is this. Now, a couple of things happening in, in the job markets. Right? First of all, coming out of COVID, businesses, particularly larger businesses, did not really hire everybody back. They're running at about 70% of the workforce they used to have. Why? Because... If they don't hire everybody back, they save wage costs. And they recoup some of the profits they didn't make during COVID when the shutdown was. Yeah. So they haven't hired people back, I think. And you can see indications of this. Uh, it came out uh, during the negotiations last November uh, over the railroad workers. Remember that? Well, it turned out the railroad workers were saying, unions were saying, uh, uh, there's only 70% of us returned to, to work after COVID. Only 70%. That's why they're working the hell out of us. <clears throat> and we're, we're getting injured, we're getting sick, and we may, need more paid sick leave days, 15, right? Because <laughs> they don't have any. You know, those who are there who are working, the 70%, are being driven into the ground. And, of course, Congress says, no, you don't get anything. <clears throat> the Biden administration, the friend of labor, right, threaten the unions and workers uh, with anti-strike legislation, taking over, which meant taking, if you struck, they're going to take over your unions and take over your, uh, put you in receivership, government receivership, you know, like they used to do with the Teamsters and uh, uh, new leaders and uh uh, you can't negotiate uh, during that period, et cetera, et cetera. So they really uh, intimidated the hell out of them. But 70% only came back. Well, look again what's happened with the airlines. they got all these problems with staffing. They're saying they can't find people. I don't think they want to find people. I think you're getting these reports of, oh, you got all these job openings versus the number of unemployed, you know, like a two two jobs for every unemployed person. Well, the unemployed number is low because they only look at full-time unemployed, right? 3.4%. We have 50, 60 million people who are part-time workers in this country now out of 160 million labor force. You know, so that number is low. And I think the number of job openings, they don't really intend to fill in the basic industries. You know, look at the airlines. You know, 
they're running on skeleton crews. That's why they got all these scheduling problems. Whenever you get a little problem with the, the weather or something like that, everything gets screwed up, you know? They didn't bring people back purposely, save waste costs, boost their profits. Work those who they do bring back like hell. You know, long hours, overtime, no breaks, right? no pay time off, whatever. That's going on in the airlines. I bet it's going on in trucking. Got to be going on in transport and trucking. But what about health care? Look at the health care numbers. We have 500,000 fewer workers in health care today than we had in 2019, pre-COVID. Have you gone to the hospitals lately, right? I mean, they're really screwed up. They don't have the support people there anymore. You can't get in. You know, you go, you got to go to emergency, right? You can't get a normal uh, procedure done without weeks of delay. You can't see a doctor for weeks, months. That's because half of half a million people are not coming back to health care. Well, that's repeated over and over in industry and industry, I believe. And they're saying, oh, we can't get workers back. They don't want workers back. They want to run on a bare-bones skeleton crew. Saves them lots of money. They don't care that they're driving people crazy on the job. Saves them a lot of money, a lot of profits. I think that's what's going on, and that explains part of the anomalies here in what we have in in the job numbers. So how did we get 500,000? As I've talked about before, you know, is this really 300,000 people decide in one month to come back to work that were out of the labor force? I don't think so. That's called labor force participation. No, I don't think so. I think part of the problem is uh, what I've explained in the past, and that is seasonality adjustments. Because that number of 500,000 is is adjusted for seasonal factors. That's what statistics do. Statistics take the actual numbers and they do uh, an operation on them and come up with a statistic. A statistic is not the raw actual data. It's an adjustment of that data. So seasonality, I think, adjustments in this new labor, uh, post-COVID labor market are inaccurate. And also, I think there's this this crazy idea they call new business formation that I've talked about in the past. What's that? Oh, that's uh, where they take the actual numbers they get from the uh, companies or their surveys, actual data of jobs created, unemployment, whatever, and they take that number and they add to it. What happened six months, six to nine months ago in business creation, small businesses. You know, every month we get a couple hundred thousand small businesses formed, and we get a couple hundred thousand that disappear, go out of business. And when you have a reopening of the economy, you have a lot more formations than you do exits. They really don't know how many are exiting the economy, businesses going under. They don't really know that. They know how many new businesses are formed because you've got to file papers. 
But when you go out of business, they don't file any papers. They just go. So the government makes up this exit number uh, and keeps it pretty steady. Uh, And then uh, when you have uh, last spring, when the economy began to open up again, spring of 22, uh, well, then you have a lot of new business formation. Then there's a certain assumptions, equations of how many jobs with new businesses and so forth. And the point I'm making is the new business formation statistic, they take that number of six to nine months ago when new businesses formed and supposedly the number of people employed by them, they take that number, that raw number, which is based on phony assumptions anyway, and then nine months, six to nine months later, they add that to the raw data they get from the businesses in terms of jobs and so forth, and they smash those together, the new business formation, phony assumption numbers with the numbers they get from the companies, you know, with statistical adjustments, and then they come up with a jobs number. I think all that's nonsense. And I think that's why we're getting nonsense numbers on the job markets. Now, this is pretty important because it's the job numbers that Fed Chairman Powell is really focusing on justifying his policies. He's saying in December and in his press conference yesterday, both of which I've taken copious notes of what he had to say, He's saying that, uh, oh, you know, there's three areas of inflation. There's goods inflation. In other words, the price of actual physical things you buy, goods. And that's a moderating. That's coming down. Then there's housing, which is rents and mortgages. And uh, he says that, oh, housing, yeah, it's kind of high, but we expect it to come down in the middle of the year. So, you know, he puts that aside and says, okay, housing inflation, uh, that's going to mitigate itself. Yeah, we know the rents are going through the roof, right? And and the rent numbers are lowballed. Because if you take rent increases for 10 million people, right, and then you have no rent increases for the rest of them, it comes out a low number. But for those people who are experiencing 20, 30 percent rent increases or more, you know, it's not a low number. But anyway, they average it all out. And then they put in this phony statistic called imputed rents to lower the number even more for rent hike inflation. Well, what's imputed rents? Oh, imputed rents is homeowners paying themselves rent. That's what they call imputed rents. That somehow we pay ourselves rent. And by the way, they just set a number very low for imputed rents increases per year. It's a fixed number. But half of the total rent statistic is imputed rents. Homeowners pay themselves rent, and about half of it is actual rent increases. That's how they get that number of rents very low. It's really much higher than it is rent inflation. Okay, so 
the rent inflation, oh, you know, Powell says, well, that's, uh, you know, we'll put that aside. We think that's going to come down as uh, uh, new leases, rent leases are negotiated here um, in the middle of the year. You know, the, the new leases were pretty high as they came out of COVID uh, because, uh, you know, landlords saw an opportunity uh to get rid of people here when they got rid of the rent assistance and when they got rid of them, they raised their rates. Right? Oh, the, you know, new contracts next year are going to be lower, according to Fed Powell. So, you know, he kind of puts the rent uh, mortgage uh, uh, problem aside. You know, just as he said, oh, with goods, oh, it's coming down, goods inflation coming down. Uh, well, what goods really are coming down? Uh, well, the price of gasoline, durable goods are non-durable. You know, you it's called a non-durable good, gasoline, and all the other uh, energy, you know, natural gas, so on and so forth. They said that, well, that's been coming down. Well, crude oil is about $80 a barrel, right? But it seems kind of stuck there. And with the war coming more intensely in Ukraine, it's going to go back up. And the spring, it's going to go back up. I've been predicting... Gasoline prices at the pump are going to start going back up around April, May, as they do every April, May. You know, and the oil companies price gouging. They figure people are going to start driving more. Well, I'm going to jack up the price. You know, there's going to be a fire in a refinery somewhere in Texas as <laughs> an excuse. No supply problem. And they, they seem to always do the maintenance in the spring, too, so they can shut down a refinery and say, oh, that's the reason. Uh, that we're raising prices. And by the way, we got a refinery problem in the U.S. We got a massive glut of oil, but uh, they haven't built a, a, a an oil refinery, a gas, gasoline refinery here uh, in decades. Uh, so that's the bottleneck that the oil companies use uh, to manipulate price increases. Okay, so that's going to happen in the spring. It's going to come back, right? So all this Fed talk about old oh, durable goods. Prices are disinflating. What disinflation means is that uh, the rate of increase in prices is slowing. It doesn't mean we got a fall in prices. We got a slower rate of increase in prices. Okay, but we got some uh, some relief at the pump here. <clears throat> but that's going to change. That's going to go back up. I predict, you know, at least a dollar a gallon uh, come the spring. Okay, so uh, the durable goods disinflation argument by Fed Chair Powell uh, is is going to disappear. Hmm? Uh, I don't believe the rent increase uh, is going to, uh, you know, abatement is going to occur this summer. I don't see any reason why they shouldn't continue raising rent costs, rent prices. And that leaves the third area that Powell talks about in his press conferences, and uh, that's services, services minus housing services, right. services. He says, oh, that's the real problem. You know, wages aren't coming down in services. So we need more unemployment so people have less income to spend, and that will reduce demand, and demand-driven prices will come down. Okay, so you reduce from 9% CPI inflation 
consumer price index inflation last year to we're at the, at the end of the year six and a half percent. All right, so if they have more unemployment and services, they might bring it down another one and a half percent, maybe two. So you're still at four and a half to five percent. Let's say four and a half percent inflation, chronic, high, stuck. Why? Because that's the supply side inflation that the Fed can't do anything about. It can engineer a big contraction of the economy through layoffs. It seems we're having a hard time doing that because businesses are running on bare bones already. And if they more lay people off, there, it's like they're going out of business. There's not much slack that they can lay more people off. That's why you're not getting in services the big layoffs yet. And they'll get some more, but they're not going to be able to push it below 4.5% inflation for the rest of this year. Now, the Fed's target is 2% inflation rate. Yeah, they want to get it down to 2%, which is what it was historically before all the COVID and all that stuff began to happen. It won't happen. They're never going to get back to 2%, even with a deep recession, because the global economy and supply side and corporate monopoly and price gouging is going to continue. And maybe even worse, worse than on the global supply chain scenario with war and so forth. And to some extent, China's demand uh, reopening a little bit here. Uh, demand will increase industrial commodity prices, agricultural commodity prices, industrial commodity prices, oil prices. That will drive oil prices up too. Yeah. So those supply-side problems or causes of inflation aren't going away. And the Fed can't do a damn thing about that. And they admit they can't. That's a political, geopolitical, global economic thing that the central banks don't have any control over. And then you add the fact that it appears central bank policies are having less and less effect in general over the long term. Brings us back to the Great Recession, 2008 and 10, here in the U.S., which extended to about 2013-14 in Europe. What happened? Well, the Fed lowered interest rates to zero for six years. And what did we get? We got a below-average recovery from the Great Recession, about two-thirds of GDP. It took us six years to get the jobs back that we lost. And we really didn't get the economy back to where it was until like 2015, 16. And once it got back, the Fed tried to raise interest rates because it had pumped $4 trillion, no, about $3 trillion, $3.5 trillion into the economy and free money into the banks to keep them from failing between 2009 and 15, you know, trillions of dollars. And then it tried in 2007 to get some of it back, you know, to try to take some of that $4 trillion back out of the economy. It couldn't do it. Why? Uh, because uh, Donald Trump said, uh, 
uh, I'm going to fire you guys if you keep raising interest rates. <laughs> and they stopped. Janet Yellen, who was the chair, Fed chair, stopped. Keep the Fed from interfering. I mean, keep keeping Trump from interfering with the Fed. So the interest rate hikes designed to bring the money out stopped abruptly. In 2018, having stopped the rate hikes, Trump then pushed Congress, pushed through Congress, $4 trillion in tax cuts for corporations and the rich and the 1%. $4 trillion it was. You know, at the time they said it was only $1.5 trillion. Well, $1.5 trillion based upon the phony assumption that the economy in the U.S. would grow 3 to 4% every year for 10 consecutive years following the 2018 tax cuts, which, of course, it did. We had COVID, right, and everything else that's weak recovery followed again. So that's the situation. And by the way, uh, you know, the $4 trillion uh, Fed injections, and you had a couple trillion dollars of uh, fiscal injections. You know, you had about five to six trillion dollars in stimulus. We got a very uh, below historical two thirds uh, recovery of the economy in that decade. A $4 trillion tax cut didn't really stimulate much except the financial markets. And that brings us to COVID in 2020, right on top of all that. You know, uh, the national debt went from $9 trillion to about $17 trillion under Obama. All the time, of course, you know, we're pushing the national debt uh, by increasing war spending in the Middle East, right? That adds to the tax cuts and the spending, and that's why we get all that national debt rising. But they figured they could handle the national debt because interest rates are so low for the government. But then we get the COVID on top of all that picture. And what happened in March 2020 with COVID? Well, the Federal Reserve threw another $4 trillion at the bankers and investors. And they didn't really need it this time. There was no indication of a banking failure as there was in 2008-9. But they threw the money at him anyway, just in case there was going to be. So that was another $4 trillion by the Federal Reserve thrown into the economy, actually thrown into the hands of the bankers and the investors, which meant we are at 8 to $9 trillion, the Federal Reserve debt. They call that the balance sheet of the Fed. $9 trillion Federal Reserve. And now the Fed is trying to take some of that back by raising interest rates. But it's going to fail again. It's not going to be able to take that money back. Why? Because if they raise rates over five and a quarter, five and a half percent, I believe it's going to precipitate the financial crash again. Yeah. So they know that. And that's why the Fed is stopping at about five, five and a quarter interest rate, policy rate, they call it, the federal funds rate, policy rate, terminal rate, they're calling that. We're going to stop at somewhere between five and five and a half. Because if they go to six, seven percent, you've got a financial problem in the economy, capitalist economy. So Fed, the problem, the bottom line here is that monetary policy, federal reserve, interest rate policy, 
throwing money in the economy called QE, quantitative easing, easing yeah. does not have as great effect as it used to have in stimulating the economy. We saw that after 2009. We only got two-thirds of a growth rate after $4 trillion and zero rates kept for five years thrown into the economy. We got a lower-than-average historical two-thirds of normal recovery during the Obama years. And now we got the opposite application of monetary policy. We are raising interest rates. We didn't push them to zero. We're raising interest rates in the hope that we will uh, uh, mitigate and slow inflation. It will have some effect, but not the effect it used to have pre-21st century, pre-2008. So monetary policy does not have as efficient an impact on stimulating the economy, and it's not as efficient in slowing the economy when there's inflation. Monetary policy, which is the policy approach of choice of the capitalists in the 21st century, because everything's got to go through the banks, you see. Bankers get rich and just trickle down to the rest. They like that. They don't like the direct fiscal spending or tax hikes under rich. Uh, monetary policy is almost broken. Now, I talked about this and predicted this in my 2017 book called Central Bankers at the End of the Ropes, Monetary Policy and the Coming Depression. Clarity Press. Look it up. Look at the reviews on my website, jrproductions.com. Read the book reviews. I predicted all this. I predicted all this, and at the same time, I predicted, well, I not predicted, but I, I wrote at the conclusion of that book what I thought had to happen, because central banking is at the end of its ropes. It's not as efficient as it used to be, both in stimulating the economy and slowing interest rates. In the conclusion of that book, right, I talked about what would have to happen legislatively and even a constitutional amendment to democratize the Fed. Because the Fed is just following what the bankers want. Right? And in that chapter, that concludes, I, I described how the bankers still control the Fed indirectly and its, its strategic directions. I'm not going to go uh, over the arguments for that, but I did talk about enabling legislation and a constitutional amendment that would fully reform the Fed. The Fed was partially reformed in the 1930s. It was blatantly run by the bankers. And then in the 1930s, after it had totally failed, uh, they added, quote, seven governors to the bankers, you know, who together with the bankers as partial government uh, uh, appointees and the bankers, you know, jointly running the Fed since the 1935. Uh, but that uh, the, the bankers have figured a way to get around that and uh, manipulate the Fed to their advantage anyway. So in this, this, this book, I talk about, uh, you know, how we would reform and democratize the Fed with uh, um, 
constitutional amendment and enabling legislation. So central bankers at the end of their ropes. Check it out. Right. Okay. So uh, that's about it for today. Um, We'll pick it up next time.